Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Melanie Bennett and Shannon Douglas. Uh, both Melanie and Shannon are parents who are concerned about a lot of the quote-unquote wokeness, um, I guess especially the gender ideology. Uh, Melanie is also a podcaster, and Shannon, I believe you also record with Melanie as well? Yeah, we co-host a podcast called The Weekly Canadian Gender Wars Report. I was doing that as a, a blog for uh, most of this year. Uh, up until uh, when did we start? Uh, late August, Melanie. I think it's been I, about five weeks. Yeah, I invited Melanie to help me take uh, go from a blog to a, a, a video podcast, and we're now doing the weekly live on Sunday afternoons about uh, the the you know the emerging stories in the gender wars in Canada. Um, I've been following this closely for the last uh, two and a half years, so uh, uh, that's a little. You know, a lot of content for people who might just be figuring out what's going on in schools and um, and and their awareness is raising and they want to understand what's happening at kind of at a deeper level and some of the some of the big news. Actually, something you what you mentioned there, people are only just starting to realize it. So I'm going to I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat, give you like a little scenario that you might think is something that something in the way of sort of what happened. Um, Okay, so. I don't know if you've heard of an organization called Free Range Kids. Uh, and they also have a thing called Let Grow. It started out in the States, and I know uh, Lenore was trying to get some chapters in Canada. And it's basically just helping kids get confidence. And they go to a school, and they get all the kids in that school to agree, or they get a, a neighborhood of parents to agree. If you see my 10-year-old walking to the store, don't call the cops. You know, that kind of stuff. So it's just to like, you know, get kids to make breakfast one day you know, they're a big, huge advocate for free play. And I bring that up. I'm going to start with that and then come on down to where we are. And, you know, I think we're all roughly about the same age, all Gen Xers. And if you think back to the late 80s, early 90s, like, you know, the stranger danger, all that yep. kind of stuff, it got more and more oppressive. And parents had less and less time to actually do anything because you're fearing your kids every. You can't leave your kids alone. So that was one aspect of it. Parents didn't have time, but then, then all this woke stuff came out of the universities, started coming into the schools, and like you know, that's where the teachers were learning. So that's how they started teaching kids. And so until COVID, I don't think I think there was a huge chunk of time where parents didn't know what was going on in their kids' schools and didn't know what was being taught. And I think the two kind of go hand in hand. That's why I was like saying like my little you know tinfoil hat like. You had on one side, you had all the safetyism where you, okay, we have to protect the kids. We can't let them, you know, parents have, can't leave them. And like some of the stories I was reading, uh, you know, mom going for a job interview at a hairdresser and leaves her 12 year old park across the street and child protective services is called on her, you know, and things like that. And then I was looking at this, I'm like, it's, there's a lot to be fixed there. It's, and not just one small part of this, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But so when you said, you know, parents only really started waking up years ago so do you think that part of the covid lockdowns whatever was in some way a mixed blessing that parents got to see what was going on in their kids schools and what they were learning before where they weren't really paying attention well first of all uh i'm a millennial i'm not oh, a sorry teenager. sorry <laughs> um, and I could, <laughs> how dare you um but I cannot. I, I can only speak for myself. I have an unusual story, so 
I was born in Canada. Actually, my family are from Montreal uh, and Ottawa, but um, I spent most of my life in the UK. So I, I, I spent all my adult life in the UK. I was educated there. That is what I culturally identify as. Um, and I, I took a job here six six years ago and came with my, my son. And um, I can tell you that immediately when I got here, I could tell something was off. <clears throat> in fact, I remember telling my friends and family within months um, thinking, something a bit off about Canada. It's not It's not what I remember growing up. I thought, okay, maybe it's because it's the GTA. It's not Montreal. I'm technically French Canadian and British. So um, I, I, yeah, it took me, it took me six years to figure out what the issues are. It, six years. So um, my story is a little different. I do, I do think uh, that many parents seem to have um, realized what's going on in the schools, definitely during the pandemic, or at least that's what I hear. So I don't know if we mentioned it in the introduction, but I, I'm also part of Our Duty Canada. So when when I started realizing what the problems were, I, I started reaching out, um, certainly felt a little bit isolated. So I joined Our Duty Canada, which is a parent sport organization. Um, and that is an organization that has many parents who are in the same situation. They Their families were effective, uh, affected negatively by uh, the gender issues here in Canada. So, um, and that's kind of where my, one of my podcasts is that the resilience on YouTube, I talk to some of these parents, I talk to all kinds of parents, educators about gender. So that is a recurring theme that I've come across um, that, you know, is to do with the pandemic increased use of, of the internet, uh, specifically TikTok seems to come up quite a bit um, for the girls. Um, I've had that over and over. I certainly found that with my own family, uh, an increased use of internet. I, I started using TikTok during during the pandemic and still seeing all these trans videos. And even then it took me a while to figure it out. So uh, yeah, I, I I would say that from what I'm hearing, that that's pretty common. I don't know about you. Well, Shane, I think, you think? You know, I am a Gen Xer and I think I'm kind of square in the middle of Generation X. And uh, we straddled, you know, the analog and the digital age, right? I grew up very much a free-range kid. Uh, I lived internationally uh, on the coast of South America, and I was. Uh, well, my my mother came from a fishing village in Newfoundland. My father was a farmer. You know, the joke in the prairies is you can let the kids just go, and you can see them four miles away because <laughs> the land is so flat. And uh, you know, sort of culturally, I I had the ability to, uh, you know, I left the house in the morning with a pocket knife and. Uh, uh, a pack of matches and a fishing hook when we lived in Chile and, uh, you know, five, six, seven years old. And, and we would, uh, we'd forage our own lunch and, and cook it on the beach. And, uh, that was just sort of, uh, uh, what you did, um, small, um, emerging, uh, economy town, 5,000 people. And, uh, and I, I did my best to convey that impart that to my own kids, that self-sufficiency and that self-reliance, which Canadians used to to be known for um and now it's uh we, we've got this sort of like you like you said uh, safetyism that's emerged in the last 10 years quite frightening um and and you know it gives uh what what i think has happened is it's given school authorities um a, a presumption of power that they are the protectors of children and that the outside world is harmful and scary and not safe. And they have to put boundaries around those kids around and based on the ideology that they've uh, you know, picked up in universities in the last 10 years and teachers college and, uh, and, and to, 
and to extend that bubble wrap or that safetyism around kids, even um, in in uh, you know their own uh, against their own families. Um, there was a, a notice that went out today about a activist uh, coming into Peel schools, I think it was, to teach about uh, how uh, Pierre Polyev and um, Jordan Peterson and a number of others are white supremacists and basically evil. Um, uh, and to bring this into grade seven classrooms in in public schools, and this is this is a, a an act that turns children against parents. People who come from a religious family, people whose families are traditionally conservative, uh, are going to be learning in the state sponsored education system that their parents are bad. It's it's uh, uh, we've just gone too far. Yeah, I find that really interesting, the white supremacist uh, extreme right, because uh, uh, so not that anyone can see me, but anyone looking at me would probably place place me in the firmly in the category of a progressive leftist. And I was pretty much my entire life. I worked in those kinds of areas. That's the circles that I functioned in. Uh, My friends and family certainly are, you know, very strongly in in that camp. Um, And yet the moment that you disagree with some of these things here in Canada because I I did put the brakes on in some of those things when I got here because Canada is very special in that way I can tell you that much um I I now get called a white supremacist or I get called a a conservative or an extreme right or things like that and 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 it's it's just confusing to me every time because no one would ever ever put me in that category whatsoever so how do you combat that who knows but yeah that's that's the only reason I know anything about CRT and it's the only reason I started reading it so gender. I came back um, so I spent, I don't know, close to 13 years, I think, overseas working with the military and I came back to Canada in 2014 and my last contract overseas was in Afghanistan. So I come back and you know, I come from a Muslim background and I see all this stuff about Islam. I'm like, this is all wrong. And so I start criticizing things like the hijab. I don't say straight out that the Taliban is ISIS are firmly rooted in Islam. And yeah, I'm brown. I got called a white supremacist. So I mean, it just at that point, I'm like, okay, what what's going on here? Why did they, like, where does that come from? There's, you know, in what world am I a white supremacist? And so even that, I mean, look at, uh, I don't care what you think of the man, but like Larry Ellis, oh, the black face of white supremacist. Like, I mean, come on! It's you know the, the words have lost all meaning. Well, one of the things you mentioned, little towns. Yeah, so growing up in Montreal, you know, it's not actually a small town, but yeah, I was the same way. I was a latchkey kid. I'd come home on my own, like you know, first grade, let myself in, make myself a snack um, on the weekends, go out, you know, first thing in the morning, don't come back until the you know street lights come on. But I spent. Uh, five years in an Inuit community up in northern Canada. And there, it's, it's, kids are, especially in the summer when the sun's out till, you know, sunrise is at two and it's out till 11 at night. The kids are out all the time. And older kids are watching younger kids, you know, but it's not like there's even like 15 year olds. They're all. I guess like the oldest would be 12 down to like toddlers. And that's just normal. Come back to Montreal. Just shocked to see that. 
Well, I that's that's how I was raised. Millennial or not, I most definitely identify as a Gen X. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I certainly was uh, raised by a, a feminist who was very much into her job, so very much latchkey child also in Montreal. <laughs> um, and I benefited from that. I think we all benefited from that uh, to a certain extent. It certainly made us much stronger in character. I think more resilient um, than than what we see. And I, I, I tried to raise my own child that way. So I my previous career, I guess, was an ecologist. I did uh, tours of conservation, uh, spent a lot of time outdoors, very, very, uh, very environmental, very outdoorsy, uh, climbing mountains, you know, very adventurous person. So I tried to raise my son that way. Um, And well, you know, people have their own personalities. And uh, he was much more like his father, much preferred being on the computer but you know he would a little bit when he was younger but as soon as we came to Canada that just you know I thought we'd come to Canada and it would be like like when I was younger we'd be able to um, enjoy the great outdoors with a bunch of people and that kind of wasn't really the experience uh, that I had and um, he just seemed to regress even further now I'm not saying that that's necessarily because of the schooling system although you know how much is the school how much is natural but I do often wonder thinking back you know how much of that really influenced a lot of the issues that 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 we had, but yeah, I I, I do feel like there's a the, the even if you don't raise your child in a way that is um, overprotective, because that's certainly not I think we call it helicopter parenting, like mm-hmm. that's absolutely not the approach that I've ever taken. But I, I've tried to instill values like uh, discipline and accountability and um, hard work and um, you know having uh, having good relationships with people. But through that, in my time in Canada, um, I, I I get called an abusive parent for doing that. So that I can squarely uh, put some of the blame uh, on the social influence of the education system here in Canada, without a shadow of a doubt. Okay, I want to get to the education system, but I just want to get your opinion. So you said you moved here six years ago, or moved back here six years ago. What do you think about what's going on in the UK? Because... Again, going back to the Islam thing, you know, I was seeing all over Europe and North America, like the discourse around Islam, and you know, the whole grooming gang story started breaking around you know, around 2014. You had the whole Rockdale thing, I think, in 2015, when that first story came out, 1,500 girls in like in the Rockdale area and stuff like that. So I can't I, answer I, that. I, no, I can't answer just, that because all of the friends and family that I have in the UK, and that's pretty much where I got my news from and in stories or whatever, they're all what, what I would call woke. And so, you know, right now, I, I I still have relationships with them, but it's strenuous at best. And I I get called, you know, I'm told I exaggerate They're You know, these people have known me my entire life. But they know that I'm not homophobic or racist or anything like that. But because of the stance that I've taken, because I've seen Canada much further down the line in some of this thinking, because I uh, I see things that they're not able to see yet, even my closest friends and family, which I, I had great relationships with, uh, think I'm exaggerating or a little bit crazy or maybe possibly in a cult or, you know, like I, I do get that. So it's hard for me to tell because when I when I did hear the stories uh, from them, I certainly never heard any of these. Uh, I never heard about grooming gangs. I never heard about any racism. Uh, I know there's now I understand there's a lot of problem with mass immigration to the UK, which is causing an enormous amount of problem. But if I raise that, if I ask questions about that, uh, there's a lot of defensiveness as though I'm being very racist for bringing it up. So, you know, I, I don't feel like I could possibly answer that. I know there's issues, um, but I can certainly say 
that the people that I know um, do not see it in the same way that you are. They, they, I think they see it from a woke perspective. Okay, sorry. What I was trying to get at was, how do you see the UK now going woke? Because, okay, the stuff with Islam and whatever, not maybe you can call it proto-woke or whatever, but it wasn't really the same woke stuff that's going on now. But now you have BLM in the UK. I think, I think the UK is trailing. I think the UK is trailing behind us. I think I've I've been telling people Canada is the canary in the coal mine. And it's the canary in the coal mine, from my understanding, because it the institutions are all absolutely captured in a way that, for example, in the UK, they're not. So for gender, for example, we've got that enshrined in law. And in the UK, they're trying to kind of remove gender from the law because they they've pulled back, they've realized. But Canada's gung-ho. There's absolutely I, I mean, I just don't, I would like to see it removed from law, but it, it probably won't. And so it's a canary in the coal mine. We're worse. Now, whether or not people actually bother to see, and, and many people seem to, uh, I, I know here in Canada, when it comes to gender, we look up to the UK saying, okay, well, if they're able to put a halt on these things, maybe we will as well. But our laws are different. So I don't I don't know. I, some people see it, some people don't. It's, it's hard for me to say. I've been here seven years. I, I've barely been back. So, you know, all, all I really know is what I read in the paper and, 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 the discussion I think in I some ways, Melanie, that the UK yeah. is leading rather than trailing. Um, and I understand where you're coming from when you say it's and leading maybe in, in that, but trailing thinking. in terms of people's like yeah. understanding of the well, problem. Well, there's been for sure. there's been good pushback in the UK for a few years, and there's been good legal precedents set, yes. cases argued. You know, uh the Maya Forstatter case in the UK was was very important where uh, it ended up that, uh, you know, I don't know the specifics of the law, but basically they said that believing that there are, are two sexes is a protected belief, right? You, you can't discriminate against somebody yeah. because they believe in biology, but it was touch and go there for a while. Um, and in Canada, we're, yes. we don't have that. So, you know, there was this incursion of wokeness, in, especially in the trans area that I've been following. And uh, UK seems to have been able to inoculate itself a little better than and the rest of the world i think they there were people who saw the problem earlier there were people who spoke out against the problem yeah. and it hadn't entrenched itself so deeply that um that it couldn't be unwound so in in some ways they are they are leading um, um i think you're describing yeah. what i'm saying in a different way because that's the thing. So living in the UK, we could see American problems. We could see American. So this is really an American problem. Um, and so, you know, we saw that. And, uh, you, you know, there's some kind of importation of American culture, but it's not it's not the way it is here in Canada. Like Canada absorbs American culture in a way that the UK doesn't. And so there's always going to be some some barrier between uh, what's happening here in, in North America and, and it being exported over there. So that's kind of what I mean. Like Canada's way worse, way, way more forward. And the UK went, oh, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so I, anyway, that's my interpretation. I don't know of it. so much about the, the race thing. issue because uh, from my understanding, the, I mean, we have an example. I think it was Philadelphia last week. Anyway, there was a major city in the U.S. where there was organized looting. Um, and you know the windows breaking, mm -hmm. and and it, this was not a small number of people. And the news media all reports that these were looting gangs, okay, but no one reports that these were these were black Americans. Um, you're not allowed to say it, and you're not allowed to say that that uh, you know, for example, in Ottawa, we've got a large Somalian community, um, and there are lots of great people from Somalia. They've come here under hardship. And there are a lot of young black men from Somalia who didn't grow up with the rule of law like we did, who, who don't understand 
that we live by a rule of law and they've uh they've created a diaspora that's violent and uh that you know it, it, you know crime is sort of a, a part of the culture but no one's allowed to say that that there are that there's a specific you know uh, you know place of origin that there are specific um a, a specific race involved because that's racism so the the media won't report it um because that would be to you know violate uh whatever codes of, of talking about race that we have instantiated in in uh, in journalism and now i believe um and i don't know a ton about the grooming gangs but i believe that was part of the problem that there was a public sort of um uh taboo about speaking about certain communities and and what was going on in certain communities and so no one could talk about it no one if you can't define the problem you can't solve it um yeah, that's what I have with my family. I'm not allowed to talk about certain things. That's definitely the feeling I get. Yeah, even on a personal level. Yeah, okay. I mean, the grooming, I, I don't want it to devolve into the talk of the grooming gangs. Okay, well, you mentioned that. One of the reasons it broke was that um, a sick family, or a few sick families, their daughters were targeted, and they spoke out. And so they weren't listening to it when it was white, working-class British people. But when it was, you know, British, you know, like British people from a Sikh origin or Sikh immigrants, then now it's like, okay, well, which brown person do we believe? That's what it basically came down to. And that's that's what really broke the story around 2014 or 15. I can't remember the exact year, but the Rockdale story broke out. But yeah, so that that's that you know, that's how the grooming gang thing broke. And that's the only reason I knew anything about it was because these Sikh families went up and they, they said, okay, this has happened. And then then you had the whole thing kind of blow up. Like I said, the first story that I read was 1,500 girls in a rock deal. I mean, that was over a period of, I believe, 10 years, but still, that's 150 girls a year. Yep. That's, that's nuts. It's interesting but, that the um, communities of Muslims so, and Sikhs and, and other visible minorities in Canada have been the ones to really, I mean, the, the Million Person March was... Uh, you know, suddenly couldn't be criticized as white supremacist, working class uh, Canadians. Uh, this was this was all of a sudden. Uh, there, there's actually minority groups that are affected by this, and the and the weapons that the woke use to uh, distort reality to other people, to shut down conversations, and to minimize what people's concerns are. Were, those tools were suddenly taken away from them. Uh, and the and the media is floundering around because they don't know what to make of this. Yeah, no, I was just saying. Like, so if you want to like talk about what's going on in schools, go ahead. And then, um, like I said, I'll give you my thoughts about Islam more. But like the pushback coming from like the Muslim and the Sikh communities and stuff like that, so I'm a little wary. Some of the Muslims are like I said. I really like to know what's going on in the schools and what you're seeing because I'm an outside. I'm an outsider looking. At I don't have kids. Um, I got into this about the race thing, and I just looked at all of it. I'm like, this is all nuts. This is all liberal. This is you know, denying reality. Um, and I'm being a little selfish. I, I'm close to whatever I got, 10 years before I retire. I want the people looking after my pensions to know that two plus two does not equal five. I want my doctors picked based on their qualifications, not because of their same skin colors. You know, like I, I want the person giving medical advice shouldn't be able to tell me that men can get pregnant. So that's that's where I'm coming from on this, you know, like, purely selfish on this thing. So, um, like I said, if you guys want to talk about the schools, like I'd really love to do that for a little bit. 
I mean, the long and the short of it is I think every single school board in, in uh, Ontario has doubled down, really. Uh, and double down on what? Double down on the idea that uh, the million marches specifically were about LGBTQIA plus other letters, um, uh, hate. It, it it was all about hate. And I think that's the approach that they've sort of taken um, uh, on, on that particular thing. So I, you know, I... I'm not in schools. My my son has grown up and moved out. Um, uh, it seems to me that it, when it comes to the schools, and Shannon, correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me, uh, although the school boards really take a strong stance in, in defending SOGI or sexual orientation and gender identity type of policies, that um, it it really depends on 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 the school and it really depends on the principal uh, and to some extent I think it really depends on the individual teachers who, from my understanding, have quite a bit of autonomy. So my son was at the York Region District School Board, and come to find out after that was all finished that um, it's probably one of the worst. <laughs> um, but then again, maybe they're all the worst here in Ontario. Who knows? But um, yeah, I I just feel like a, a lot of them really are, are hopping onto this idea that these are it's just a rising tide of hate and all of these regular parents all of these individual people with a diversity of thought a diversity of 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 religion diversity of ideas diversity of backgrounds and diversity of race and ethnicity and all, all, so on and so forth are are just a rising sudden rising tide of homophobic hate um so i mean that's the yeah, but- that's what i'm getting um, it, it feels like they're so close and yet so far from understanding why. Yeah, the, you know, one of the things, um, and and uh, Michael Schallenberger and uh, Peter Bogosian released something today, which is a chart about um, you know the personality disorders and uh, and how how different types of personality disorders scale within systems and and how it operates on different levels. It's, it's going to be really interesting to look at. But what we have is is a distributed kind of narcissism and in that cluster b personality disorder set of categories you i mean i'm using some outdated language but uh, psychopath sociopath uh narcissist borderline personality histrionic um, these people don't have empathy um and they can't see themselves in the mirror they're like a vampire they cast no reflection that they can see so they're incapable of seeing the impact of the uh, actions and policies that they're implementing uh, as causing any problems. They they believe entirely that they're virtuous and that they're here to save the world, which is what what I mean. What I understand is teachers' colleges for uh, not a short period of time, like a couple of decades, have been trying to attract teachers to the profession to shape the next generation. Right, and what we have now is a system that's so entrenched in an ideology that basically they're training child soldiers in the social justice crusade. And they'll alienate children from their families and their parents and and raise up this animosity and this resentment and this bitterness and this fear about the state of the world, which is completely illusory. You know, it's fake, right? Um, and yet these kids are charged mm-hmm. up and they're ready to go take on the world. The, the unions across the country, the teachers' unions, um, Ontario Teachers Union says it's a social justice organization. And so they're teaching their they're they're proliferating social justice through their members. 
um, the the uh, the elementary teachers federation, the same thing. All these organizations organizations self-identify as social justice organizations, and their roles are to train social justice children. Um, and they're using more sophisticated tools than kidnapping children from their villages and giving them guns and making them shoot their parents. But they're they're creating child soldiers. Yeah, I mean it's. Okay, I call them woke madrasas, and I mean, like the example I use is you know you go to Pakistan, and not every kid that goes to madrasa is going to join ISIS. But you know, if you take a poll in the UK and other parts of Europe, I think it's something like ninety-five percent plus a criminal offense. They're not going to go out and kill the apostate. They're not going to throw homosexuals off a cliff or off a tall, tall building like ISIS was. But they'll want to lock them up because they got that you know they got that mentality that's the that's the lens that the way they see the, the schools and something you'd mentioned Ellie, like it's up to the teacher it's up to the principal uh there's a guy in the states robert condicio uh he wrote a really good book like how the other half learns but he's been in education for a while in 20 years um and he like i talked to him about that now he's more working on the other side of things and you know he's talking about like there is no like I talk about, I read the curriculums, I read some of the you know, things that are posted by you know, a lot of people like both of you, John Kay or Chanel, you know, I'll post like the different curriculums and I, I take a look at what's being taught in schools. But, you know, he was saying like, it's the classroom is more or less a black box. So it's up to the teacher to a certain degree. And that's what I was trying to convince to some people. I said, it doesn't matter if you know what the curriculum is, if you don't know what the lesson yep. I said, you could look at the curriculum, you know, like the ninth grade English class, they're reading Huck Finn. Oh, great, Huck Finn, good book. I read it, you know, ninth grade, it's a good book for them to read or whatever. You know, I always use this as an example, but if you have a quote-unquote woke teacher who's looking at through through the lens of CRT, you can turn Huck Finn into a woke lesson. And you can 100%. talk about how Huck was u- using Jim's emotional labor. And then Huck goes back to, and then, you know, he makes himself out to be a white savior by letting Jim go, but he doesn't learn anything because he goes back to his life of privilege. Now, you can turn that book yeah. into that kind that's of That's problematizing. So, right, that, you know, that's that's critical consciousness. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a really neat, so how much of that is, well, there was a really schools? neat, Sorry, this ties ahead. to what you're saying, uh, article that came out uh, on Monday um, in the Ottawa Citizen. What do kids learn about gender diversity in schools? And it was a lengthy piece. Uh, I printed it out, and it's uh, 13 pages. And there's some images there as well. But uh, you know, I've been studying uh, school policy for a couple of years, trying to understand what's going on. And I figured out a while ago that it's not the curriculum. Like, how is it? How is this happening in classrooms? And and one of the sta- standard responses, and not long ago I heard somebody on CBC, it was a lunchtime call in about gender ideology in June, I think it was, and this was a teacher and the, and uh, and a DEI consultant and, or, or trainer or what have you, the, their lead for the school, saying, well, it's not in the curriculum. We don't teach about gender until grade eight. So uh, why are people so up in arms about this? It's not in the curriculum. And then what what this reporter has put out, and, and the Ottawa Citizens a post media property, uh, and even though the National Post has a conservative editorial stand, the the Ottawa Citizen editors are are very woke. Um, they acknowledge at length that it's not in the curriculum, that it's in the policies, 
and that teachers have all kinds of autonomy to teach what they what they want. And they brought in so-called experts from the gender studies department at Queens and a specialist in education talking about how important it is for inclusion and all of these things. And that teachers have a, a, a large degree of latitude. Um, and and no one, I, I wrote the editors yesterday to say, you know, like there's no accountability here. There's no benchmarks to measure how this is being deployed. There's there's no uh, metrics to say whether this is working or not. Uh, it's it's being given to kids, and you, you know, you, normally with the sex ed curriculum, which is which you know, people are still have their minds wrapped around that this is, you know, sex ed curriculum, and and what's going on, you know, uh, how does this how is this jumped out of sex ed? Well, it's deliberately been moved out of sex yeah. ed through these policies and deliberately done in a way that escaped public scrutiny. Every time we have a sex ed conversation about curriculum, it's a huge deal in, in Ontario, in BC, anywhere in Canada. And there's all kinds of stakeholders that get involved. But these activists have decided, well, a good way around this is to make these policies. And we'll call them human rights policies. Okay. And they say this is all about human rights. But a human rights policy has no weight of law. It's not a law, it's a policy. And the school board policies about inclusion and gender and diversity equity uh, are policies based on policies of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, not laws. And they're not written by lawyers, they're written by DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion bureaucrats and consultants for the school. So there's nothing this is just being driven by a small group of people who want to impose their view on the world. And they use these tactics of othering, you know, calling people white supremacists and bigots and hateful and all the names to, to shut people down. They've been extremely successful at it for the last couple of years as individual parents have gone to teachers, principals, superintendents. They just hold up the, the, the you know, get out of jail free card saying this is human rights, bigot. And they shut people down. And it's only now in the last few months that people have been standing up in, in numbers to say this is wrong. I'm just going to mention two things. So I think Paulo Freire is probably the most uh, well-recognized educator. So I've been learning a little bit about Paulo Freire. I'm not going to go into detail just to mention his name, but um, the, the, probably the most influential um like pedagogical teacher, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the long and the short of it is, all of the colleges of education, all of the t teacher schools, basically, uh, are steeped in in this thinking that the the education for children is really about raising uh, activists, and that's the whole premise of Paulo Freire. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, um, I, I just wanted to add to what you were saying, Shannon, that I actually received an email today uh, from a member of the public, uh, some uh, parent uh, who is part of the. Um, Ottawa school board who uh, raised an objection with the school board uh, over some uh, what what they perceived to be racism, anti-white racism. This person was saying that they were actually uh, uh, indigenous or half indigenous and half uh, half European, and and was writing to the school. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to say which one, and you know, a long email explaining that we feel like what you've been saying about uh, Europeans is very anti-European, anti-white, and we feel this is racist, maybe inappropriate. I was asking for examples of when um, when are you teaching that the bad person isn't the white person? Um, and this email chain, and there was, uh, the, I think the principal 
got back a, a few weeks later, then it was months later, then months later, and just would not answer the questions. It, it was polite. Oh, I'm very happy that you responded to us. Very happy to get your email. I assure you there's no racism at this school. I assure you this is all about inclusion. I assure you we're not here to do any harm. Very short re responses. And that was like eight months of, of to and fro and ignoring. And at, at the end of the email chain, this person contacted the school several times over a period of a couple of months. No response, no response, no response, no response. And so there's no accountability at all to, to parents. Parents are very much viewed as, um, they're viewed as the enemy, right? In these cases. And I think I'm starting to see more and more examples of, it's not just a feeling that I get, it's a reality. I can tell you that when I was raising my child in the UK, I was a very active member of the community um, as a I was doing my my postgraduate studies at the time, and I built a garden at his school. And his teachers were all very happy to have me teach there. I taught science. I, I, you know, I almost became an honorary teacher. They were very happy to have me, and I was very involved. And so when I moved to Canada, the, one of the first things I did uh, as a scientist and whatever, I I offered to do just the same for my son's high school at the YRDSB, and I could not have had a colder response from them. So I had a feeling then, but now I keep seeing these examples over and over and over again. Where no, your parent don't want you. No, don't want you. Only the woke, only the wokest get yeah. into the the committees, um, and they protect those committees and their membership very, very closely, um, and and uh, censor people. I mean, they, there's some. <laughs> I got punted from an Ottawa uh, parents group called OCAS, Ottawa Carlton, something, uh, just last week for uh, criticizing. What did they put up? Um, oh, something about Egal Canada. Uh, which is an activist organization and, and that pushes lies and hysteria, and uh, and they they muted me and shut down all comments and uh, and I was just saying, look, this is a an activist organization, and and maybe we shouldn't have this kind of activism uh, infiltrating schools. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's again, this is it happened slowly, then it happened really fast. Because go back to about. I think it was around 2016. Um, so I don't know if you if you follow uh, Mike Nana. Um, he did the he did like the Evergreen thing. Uh, he did yeah. a three part series on Evergreen. And, um, actually, there's a really good uh, video out called Digilante, which I think was one of his first things that he put out. But that's from a long time ago. But, he, uh, but Mike was doing this thing on uh, a school, like a private school in New York City, and. The teachers are saying straight out, like, we want to create activists. And you'd mentioned Michael Schellenberger, and I'd spoken to him about that because you know, Mike, Michael had gone into um, environmentalism. And so we spoke about his when he went to college. And that's, you know, when you mentioned the colleges of education, that's where it comes from. They, the first, yeah. they're teaching you to be an activist. They're not teaching you to be um, an environmentalist. So you're not learning environmental science. And they're not, you're not then using your education to um, further your activism. You're not saying, okay, I learned this in school. I learned about ecology. I learned about meteorology. I learned about the environment. I learned about what's causing all this stuff. I'm, you know, I want to protect the earth. I'm going to go push for this stuff. I'll go join Greenpeace or whatever. So you have a bunch of people learning Saul Alinsky. It's just you know, copy paste. You can replace environmentalism with "I'm going to fight racism" or "I'm going to fight homophobia" or "I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, we're going to, mm -hmm. I don't know, pick pick anything." And they just they learn how to be an yeah. actor. 
they don't actually learn the field they're supposed to be going. In. I I can tell you that uh, that that's my understanding of the North American education system for sure, because I, I studied uh, ecology and climate change, and uh, to post postgraduate level in the UK. And as much as there, and that was twenty years ago, and as much as there was an element of teaching us to be activists. There's no doubt. Thinking back, I can see the red flags now. But I don't think it was anywhere near as bad as what I understand that to be here in North America. Um, and in terms of it just happening all of a sudden, um, I, I, I I was in some conversation. Well, actually, I heard a podcast with um, Chanel Fall and Catherine Cronus and Julia Malott just recently, where they explained why well, Catherine Cronus was explaining that this has been in the school boards here in Canada for more than 10 years. So the gender policies or the, the thinking behind that anyway. And we think that it's all of a sudden because the school boards have only committed to actually putting out those policies in writing very recently. So now that it's out there, People can read it. They're starting to twig on what's going on, and it looks like it's all happening all of a sudden. But the effects of that's been going on for quite a long time. So oh, well, that's yeah. a little bit different to what you were saying. Oh, okay. When I, when I said it, it, it happened really slowly, then really quickly. Okay, I can give you the the history of why you said that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a geek. I like if I if I'm interested in something or something's bugging me, and I want to find out about it. I just dive right in. So I started looking at this from all angles. So. In Canada, at least 2013, probably closer to like 2011, in middle schools, you started having um, more of the race-based stuff. It was more of fourth-wave feminism than gender and queer yep. theory back then, but it all it still had that power, um, you know, like power and privilege, that kind of talk, like oppression oppressed. And you had some of the gender stuff. I mean, even back in like 2014, I think in, in BC, was it 2014 or 15? You could have just walked in to a doctor's office and I'm, you know, like I could have walked into the, yeah, I'm, I'm a woman now. I get a letter, go get my driver's license changed. That was, like I said, around 2015. So yeah, I, I, this has been building up. I'm, I'm not discounting that this has been here for a while. Um, I mean, in the States, they started before us because I mean, this is all American you know, this came like CRT came out of American jurisprudence. Entirely American. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's what I laugh at when I hear like Trudeau or Singh say, oh, they're using American <laughs> politics. I'm like, you're basing your race policy on American. Wokeism is American, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, you could blame the French a bit too, because like Foucault and uh, Derrida. <laughs> um, well, the yeah, very so, unique woke flavor that we have now is 100% American. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's like, you know, that's part of the thing that I, that I think is a problem in Canada is uh, I don't know if you remember this Shannon, but and, or either yourself, but I remember in the eighties, there was this joke that went around. The only thing Canadians are proud of is that they're not Americans. And that kind of got ingrained. And so now like, you know, all Trudeau has to say, well, that's American politics. Canadians clap like turn seals. Yeah. You know, and it's or maybe not so much anymore, but you know, that was at that point. So it's, it was kind of like, especially when Trump came in, it's like, Oh, we can't be like Trump. So, we're going to jump on this garbage and you know then why be more woke than the wokest country in the world then that doesn't make sense to me i am very confused by the canadian habit of like attaching itself to these odd stereotypes which oddly happened to all be quebecois like puts in and took and like 
I don't know. <laughs> uh, and, and this idea, certainly I have that in my family where, yeah, if it's American, we hate it. Yeah, we're, we, we're nothing like Americans and having to tell the entire world, we're Canadian, we're not American. Mm. Like like anyone cares except for a Canadian. <laughs> so why why then become even more woke than the, than the most woke? I don't know. You explain that to me. I Look, I, I could tell you. I, I just, okay, the whole Canadians are nice and Canadians are, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're nice and they're they're kind. Isn't I'm going to come here and say that is not true. Okay, okay. as someone yeah. who like, first of all, came from a French Canadian family, uh, speak their mind pretty loud, speak with their hands all over the place. I would not yeah. put that in a nice category. <laughs> I would put that in a more direct and maybe uh, slightly uh, snobby category. Okay, <laughs> um, and talk- then I I come to I come here in, in in the GTA. I think okay, apparently Canadians are nice. I tell you what, I did not find them nice. I found them like it's it, it, and maybe this is the wokeness talking. One of the first signs I had was people were kind of friendly, like they would respond to you with a politeness, like they would say please and thank you and respond to your question. But actually, the most cold people I've ever encountered beyond that. Yeah, so okay. I would not I mean, call that nice. I, I was just talking about the stereotype and everything, but then it is have, incorrect. But if you ever took a look at, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, "Kindly Inquisitors" by Jonathan Rowe. And he talks about the humanitarian threat to liberal science. And that's what this is. So like when he when he discusses the enlightenment, he talk, calls it liberal science. And the humanitarian threat, and he's writing, he was writing about the 90s in universities. Um, and you know, it's don't you want to fight racism? Don't you want to fight homophobia? Like, you know, how can you and so you're pulling on people's good nature? So I think You're talking that, about you know, weaponizing empathy. Yeah, pretty much. And that's what it was doing. And it's well, I'll tell you what, I do find Canadians have a, 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 a real distaste for conflict. There's no doubt about that, especially of the English sort uh, or the Anglophone sort. And so I think there is an element of that, right? At weaponizing this d- desire not to want to have any kind of conflict, plus mix that politeness on top of that. So people just don't want to, they don't want to engage with this idea, right? And then you throw in the idea of you start accusing people of all these horrible things. I, I think you're onto something, absolutely. Because the thing about the UK is that there's an element of that in UK, sure. But there's a lot more people who are much more willing to actually just be very direct, a la like me. Um, so that's much more common. And I don't know if it's because of where I live. I mean, I, I understood culturally that the GTA had a reputation for being quite cold and not genuine. So maybe it's just where I live. But um, yeah, I certainly pick that up from here. I still do even now. Now I, I like I can have conversations with people. You know, I can go to the gym and talk to people there and 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 talk about this wokeness stuff a little bit. And most people agree, but people don't want to overstep. They don't want to get involved. Generally speaking, obviously in my I guess more activist circles, that's not true because these are the people rising up and maybe a bit more brave. But on an everyday level, yeah, Canadians they don't want to get involved at all. Yeah, I mean, but I think that's more. That's not just a Canadian thing. I think most people, um, this is a, there's this a, is from a Canadian talk. flavor to that. No, but, but this was a talk from Douglas Murray. He was talking about uh, it was at the fifth, it was at the tenth anniversary of the Danish cartoon thing, and he said, like, if you look back throughout history, freedom was never really a popular idea. It was only a small number of people that pushed it. Everyone just wants to get along with their lives and go make, earn a living and come home and you know, whatever, relax and, you know, that's mm-hmm. it. That, that, that's, that's what they're working. You know, that, that's what most people want. And 
standing up to this stuff, especially the, the climate we're in, <clears throat> you are putting yourself at risk. You are putting yeah. your job at risk. You're putting your livelihood at risk. <clears throat> but you have to. Yeah. I don't know. This is one thing that I talk about a lot because I don't know what it is that compels me. But when I really understood what I understood, I felt absolutely compelled to reach out to people. I needed I needed to reach out to people. I needed to find people that understood where I was coming from. Um, uh, and I did. I was very lucky. I went to the auto protest on June 9th and I happened to find uh, a group of people. And as luck would have it, I don't know, it's fate or whatever, I found these people and have been um working with them ever since but i was compelled to do that and i i i agree with you i think maybe it's not just a canadian thing there's certainly a canadian flavor to it but it's not just canadian people do want to go about their daily lives but i'm doing these podcasts and i'm doing this work beyond just having empathy for other parents and having it happen to my own family but it's also because if we just keep doing that if we just keep allowing things to pass us by because we just want to pay our bills, we just want to, uh, you know, we just we just want to have a happy life. We just want to ignore it. The thing doesn't go away. It just gets worse. You know, one thing you hear all the time is I'm not going to be able to feed my family. Well, I, I'm here to say I have had three careers in my life um, and I gave up a very lucrative one, one uh, that but was very woke. <laughs> and and you can find other work, you can put yourself in a position that you can speak out, you can do things, right. Uh, and I think a lot of people find reasons not to they find reasons not to stand up and say things. Now, look, there's a lot of people who do. But I, I would like to see more people find the courage to be able to actually act against it, because you don't have to do much. And that's what I'm realizing, you just have to do something. You know, a lot of people say that they 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 want action, they want things to change. But when it comes down to it, I'm not actually seeing a lot of people do things. I mean, I worked for government for five years. I was working for the government up in Northern Quebec, and I was extremely vocal against the, at that point, it was more like the, the racism stuff, but I was also vocal against Islam, which is a big no-no. The federal level, you had M103 when Trudeau first came into power, and I spoke out against that. So I was just always against I had friends like one of my friends says, Oh, well, you know, I work for the government. I'm like, you work at the liquor board. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm working in the government. <laughs> like, it just is different. Let, me, let oh. me tell you a little story. I'm just going to add a little story. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and this is, I, I still haven't fully processed how this is even possible. I was invited to Richard Bilkstow's memorial and, and I went. And at his, I thought maybe I'd be a bit uncomfortable. I didn't know his family, his friends, although I did know some people through Lighthouse or whatever. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go. And I went and I sat at a table and the person sitting next to me was Richard's high school friend. And I, so we got talking about Richard and she was telling me that Richard was very, very brave. Uh, so Richard is a principal that, um, you know, took his own life yeah. recently because of some of the DI policies. Um, and, and and this friend was telling me how brave Richard was and how she wishes she was like Richard. And, you know, these DEI policies are so terrible. And don't don't you wish we could get rid of them and so on and so forth. And she was telling me how she'd been into a session recently. But of course, she couldn't speak up because she was white and she'd be called racist. And and my heart sank and I speak my mind. I cannot help it. It's got me in a lot of trouble in my life. And I turned to this lady and I said, well, why didn't you speak up? And she said, well, well, you know what it's like. They're going to call me racist and I'd lose my job. And I said, you're at Richard's memorial telling me how brave he was. And you're telling me you could not say something in that meeting. And this woman turned around and did not speak to me for the rest of the evening because it infuriates me. It infuriates me to hear these things, that people want someone else to do the work all the time. And they will go on and on. About, and, and look, I'm really sorry, lady, that you're Richard's friend. <laughs> but if you're listening to this podcast, but no, I did not. I, I was left with a very, very bad taste in my mouth. 
because that's what that's what I'm I'm finding is that uh, how do you how do you inspire people to speak up because if we don't if we just say oh well I'll have a consequence it's okay for them to have a consequence and that's great they're heroes bravo but but I can't do that and and I keep coming across that over and over and I just don't know how to inspire people and engage people to to realize that the fear of that consequence is far 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 worse than the actual consequence oh yeah 100 um Sharon I want to ask you about this because you mm-hmm. ran for school board and this is something like I've done some work with FAIR, and this is one of the things that FAIR was trying to do in the U.S. was to get people in the school board, in any kind of administration role. And if you get it enough, like you don't need to even need a majority, you need roughly about 20 to 25%. And then you start pushing the colleges of education. You say, nope, we don't want these teachers. Like you cut off the demand for that at that point. So either they have to try to push in some new kind of regulation or they have to adapt if they want their, I mean, let's just look at it really bluntly and it's like the teachers are their product, they're selling their product, so they're not putting out a good product, they're gonna go under. So what do you think about something like that? Do you think that has even a chance of working or do oh, you think I, that's like- Well, we have, to, we have to think long-term about this. This didn't arrive overnight. Um, you know, I, I work in the money business, um, Warren Buffett says the hangover is always proportional to the party the night before. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of dedicated people to turn this around. And, um, you know, my call, I, I made a speech on parliament Hill on the 20th, um, was to my fellow, uh, people in Ottawa is that we need to organize at a, at a grassroots level, we need to take names. We need to, you know, educate parents. We need to find and cultivate uh, leadership um, and and candidates that will run in these school boards. And we need to be able to win. We need to take them back. Uh, and some people are ahead of this. Now, I've talked to teachers uh, all over Canada, and I won't say where, but I I know that there are teachers who have specifically and kind of under the radar. Uh, taken back the union uh, uh, leaderships in their local um, union locals in uh, recent elections. They have uh, uh, quietly talked amongst themselves. Uh, I don't know how they figure out coded language. Like, you know, there's a wink that I'm not woke, Um, but they have gathered and they've whipped up enough people to vote and put them in positions of leadership in the unions to stop uh, some of this stuff. Other teachers I know, um, have deliberately uh, sought out the positions of diversity, equity, inclusion leads in their schools in order to basically sabotage the efforts, right? So there's, there is, uh, you know, there's, uh, what do they call it? Quiet quitting. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> quiet quitting on woke. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that, that it's uh, not only important, uh, I think it's possible. Uh, I think the work has to start now. Um, and, uh, you know, I've spoken with, um, I mean, I spoke to Preston Manning about this last year um, at a conference that I met him at. And um, there is a there is a recognition at in the Conservative Party at provincial and federal levels that they're not putting enough energy into developing a ground game, a grassroots game, and at school boards, uh, because they've kind of uh, abandoned them, haven't put emphasis on them that that that's part of the reason why they're at 
uh, uh, where they're at. And, and so there, there is a, a cohort of people in the conservative movement that recognize this and that are willing to put effort into it. That means training candidates, helping them with lists, and teaching them how to door knock, how to fundraise, how to do all this stuff. Um, but it's a process that takes time. And in the meantime, you know, like, I mean, the argument that Scott Moe is making uh, next week, uh, he's the premier of Saskatchewan, about exercising the notwithstanding clause is that this situation of secret transition in schools going on is is causing harm the longer it goes on. So we're stopping it now. Unfortunately, we can't do that unless we have serious uh, political uh, reckoning and awakening where those politicians are putting a foot down and, and saying no more of this. Um, so in lieu of that, we, we have to put the game together. We've got to run candidates and we've got to take these boards back. You need the politicians. Like this is one of the things I've been talking to a couple of like, Okay, I'm not in favor of the government coming into the schools. K through 12 is one thing, but you know, I believe in academic freedom. But at the same point, I'm like, okay, the academy didn't live up to its end of the bargain. So I'm It doesn't sorry. believe in academic freedom. Yeah, I, I, I don't trust... It, there are some academics that, that are being pushing back against all of this stuff since the 90s, and I, I respect them, but it's like, okay, at this point, I don't trust the academy to take care of this themselves. You're going to need legislation. And this is one and only time I'm actually kind of grateful for the notwithstanding clause. I mean, I, I told someone this in 2015 that I said, because I had actually had the, the misfortune of meeting Trudeau a couple of times. Um, and I was like, there's no way I'm voting for a party that has him as a leader. And, you know, I spoiled my ballot in 2015. And I said, but I said, you know, if any party had come up, any leader said, first thing we're going to do is get rid of the notwithstanding clause. I was like, I'll vote for them. Because I, for me, that was like, that's a huge hole in our charter of rights. If we, you know, if that gets, if you actually read the clause, it gets rid of section two. I'm forgetting all the sections, but it gets rid of like section two, four, 11, and 17, I believe. Well, there might be a couple others, but Section Two is where you have all your individual liberties. So, liberty, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and so you can override that with the notwithstanding clause for five years. And I'm like, okay, that's a huge hole in the chart of rights. It should be gone. But I'm actually glad at this moment in time it's there that you know, you know, like you can use that to push back on some of the stuff. Um, look, I realize I'm going a little over time and I don't want to keep you guys too long but if you're here to if, you're, if your guys are good I'm, I'm good to talk but like I, I don't want to you know, take up too much of your time but um I'd mentioned you might get that, a little uh, bit jittery likewise, but I'm happy likewise I, I, I told you like I I go, I go back to uh, I, I mentioned the Islam thing again and here's my word of warning and here's I mean take it with a grain of salt okay first of all I'm going to give you like the really really horrific stuff first is any movement that has sided with Islam. Okay, and this is a Muslim country. It's not, uh, but if you speak to Oscar Namani in the States and you read her book, Woke Army, about what happened in the US, you can also see it there. But any movement that sided with Islam, eventually Islam turned on that. So, perfect example that I can give you is, well, Iraq and Iraq. Uh, both the Ba'athists were communist and the Iranian Revolution would not have happened if it wasn't for communist students. As soon as the Iranian Revolution succeeded, they killed off all the communists that helped. The Ba'athists did the same thing in Iraq. 
you look at, if you go down to Syria and Libya, similar things happen, even though Syria and Libya during the Cold War were allied with the Soviets more so than the United States. Um, like I said, that that's, you know, that, that's the really extreme. I'm not saying that Muslims in Canada are going to be doing that here, but I I have no problem. Like, I've spoken out against, you know, Islamic homophobia. If you want that. There's 13 Muslim countries that, that death penalty for, uh, you know, for homosexuality. Iran and Pakistan, they find a gay or lesbian couple, they give them a choice. One of you dies, or both of you die, or one of you, a lot of places here in the West, like the code pink and pink games and those other things. We're praising them for being progressive for free transition through surgery. Take that wherever you want. So all I'm saying is, with the Islam thing, be very careful. If you're going to have a protest, you know this protest is about protecting kids, and that's what it's yeah. about. It's not about you burning, and it's not because I don't want people to burn flags. It's not about burning the LGBT, you know, like no. the, the original pride flag. It's not about you know slurs against homosexuals. Let me tell you, I absolutely know exactly what you're talking about, because there is no doubt that there is homophobia, like actual homophobia um, within some of the Muslims. Like, I'm just going to be real direct. I've had a problem with it. Um, I've said things from the very beginning. Um, But there's a difficult choice to be made, too, because on the one hand, um, do you so for the march? Okay, so there's lots of different kinds of Canadians, and there was certainly a lot of issues with some of the more extreme Muslim positions with some of the more secular or um, you know moderate people. There was a lot of conflict, um, and we, I guess, as a collective of people across the country, kind of decided that we we're all just going to push for this march. And it was not—it's not a march that's led by any particular group, although some groups may put a stamp on it and 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 say that they're leading it, but. There's certainly a large Muslim contingent in that. Um, but there was a decision to be made because do you simply not do the marches at all because there's homophobia? And that was a, that was raised several times. Or do you do it anyway and try to be louder uh, and and unite over this one particular thing? And that's that's what the decision that was made. And, and it turned out to be an absolutely successful uh, march and it's going to happen again. And so I I think people are very aware of that danger. There's no doubt about that. And it's certainly strange bedfellows. Um, some of the more extremist elements, I think, are sort of imploding on itself at the minute, um, which was maybe to be inevitable. But there may be other issues as well. I don't think, you know, I, I'm certainly not blind to that. But, you know, there's a there was a mission there. Um, and, and I think the, okay, so for example, right now there's still concern over some of that homophobia. So some some groups are maybe a little bit more hesitant because because it does exist. It, 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 I, it, I should say it that is there. Uh, you know, I've talked with people from Christian groups all across Canada, and there's some fairly substantial yeah. ones. And um, yeah, homophobia is the appropriate term. Um, there is a um, and, and some people are able to couch it in a in a in a reasonable language. They they say you know like. Um, adultery is a sin and uh you know drinking in excess is a sin and stealing is a sin and and homosexuality we believe is a sin and it's no different than any other sin people sin okay so that's well i hate the sin yeah. and not the and, sin and, and, that's I, what I, and I think that's an evolved um you know perspective uh if we're just talking about a, a you know a religious framework uh epistemology uh of the world and and uh uh, nevertheless, it's it, it's an easy target, and sometimes the ignorance is distasteful. 
when I hear people say certain things about gays and lesbians or that, you know, in the Christian community, they can't differentiate between any, anyone on, on the, on the rainbow. They don't recognize that. Um, yeah. And um, I, I've spent some time, you know, like letting people know that a lot of the LGB community is at odds at very significant odds with the TQ and it's the TQ that's causing the problem. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, you know, the simple, um, you know, some, let's call it the mass awareness or the simple, low information awareness is that is that it's all coming from the rainbow and everyone associated is bad yeah and, and i think you were talking about this earlier uh, you know about potential blowback um a lot of people in the gay and lesbian community are very concerned about um about blowback about uh about things coming back um and, and overcompensating in the other direction and and have i believe reason for concern Oh, yeah, 100%. And I'm not trying to say don't align with Muslims, don't align with you know, Christians. Or, it's just like be aware of what you're getting into. And I mean, yeah. uh, like, I, I'd spoken with Julia and Catherine um, a while back, and I told them both the same. It was the night of the lighthouse. I told them both the same thing. I said, just lay out what your protest is about in very clear terms and say, if you want to deviate from that, you're free to protest separately. You know, we can't stop you, but you're not part of ours. So I think the simple thing, still... the, the simple thing here is that there's, so the whole March situation is lots of people doing their own thing. So yeah. it, it it's so grassroots. It's literally the grass growing. I've heard that. So I'm going to steal it and share it. So there are a lot of Muslim groups. And even in those Muslim groups, there'll yeah. be some who are uh, more, um, headstrong and thinking the entire rainbow is exactly the same and tq the trans and queer is not separate and there's others who are more willing to understand that the lgb is a bit different so there's a wide variety in their groups there but you know people are aligning with who they're more comfortable aligning with and that's sort of happening organically because i i feel that there is an awareness of that um i i think it would be unfortunate not to uh not to go for forward with the momentum of this kind of movement because of because of that because i think there's a benefit to um everyone else who isn't thinking that way to also rise up and drown out that message because it is a minority and unfortunately it's a minority that gets a lot of attention because of because it is a a a, a stance that is not shared by the vast majority of canada which is very very distasteful um but I would say that the people in my network, we are very aware, but you can't, it, it's very difficult to have a, a, the, the united message that you're talking about doing their own thing across the board. There's no centralized control saying this was, is what we're it doing. It was like throwing a match yeah. on dry oh. tender. Uh, I like uh, all, all someone had to do was set a date and, and Melody and I were in that meeting and, and us among others pushed uh the the original organizer you need a date you're saying all these things and you're going to do this so let's just set a date tell people when the date is people will show up it's like uh you know if you build it they will come and that's what happened that's exactly what happened yeah but okay so kind of sticking with this like it's the religious thing because i think i'm sorry i was looking at this when i started reading it you know the calvinist aspect of it really I mean, it was right there, especially when you read about things like whiteness. It's, you, know, you, talk, you hear people talking about, I don't want to be consumed by whiteness. And it, you know, the, the whole idea of total depravity. And then when the gender stuff really started coming to the fore, 
more so than the race stuff. It, something kind of clicked in my head. It's like, okay, so they use CRT-based curriculum to tell you that you're either oppressed or oppressor. So if you're white, you've got original sin. You're always going to be racist. There's no way you can get around it just by the you know the fact that you're white. You're you are a racist, even if you never say or do anything racist in your life. You, that's your identity. And then you know what's why why are especially young white girls transitioning so much? It's well if you were trans or if you were non-binary or if you're queer, you were always that. So if you're always that way, you were always oppressed. Therefore, no longer a sinner. So that's your road to absolution. And so that's, you know, you start them really young. And then, you know, by the time they finish primary school, start going to middle school, they're primed to just take on whatever it is to get them out of it. I mean, I don't know if you heard about the Dalton School in New York City. And this was one of the first ones that got really publicized. So this was in 2015. It's, I think it's at that point, it was like forty or $45,000 a year. It's a K through eight academy. So they took kids from grade three to grade eight, split them up into, you know, quote unquote, affinity groups, 45 minutes a week. They told all the white kids, you're oppressors. You've kept everyone down. They, they sent letters home to the parents. How does your parent, how does your child, you know, identify racially, especially like through a mixed race? Um, and then he was told all the other kids, you know, you're oppressed. So they had, you know, an Asian group, they had a black kids group, they had a Hispanic group. You're oppressed. It's Whitey that did all this to you. Within a few months, you had these little kids talking like ethno-nationalists because little kids being little kids and I'll go, go do some research. They went online and they started looking up like, what's good about my race? What's bad about this race? And then, you know, they, they start falling into these rabbit holes. And to this day, that school still has huge, huge racial problems. And they're just, oh, well, we need more DEI. Yeah, that's the answer to everything, eh? More more wokeness, more progressivism. Uh Oh, yeah, the problems, these problems are caused by by white supremacy, like, uh, you know, open drug use in the streets and... uh, and looting and vandalism, and oh. so we need to double down, and it just uh, it keeps going and going. But this is the narcissism that you were talking about, Shannon, because the seduction of uh, that kind of thinking, that it's always someone else's fault, uh, that you don't have to take responsibility for your own feelings, that you can externalize all of the responsibility for your life, for your feelings, for everything, is mm-hmm. the narcissism, right? A- 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 but we're dressing that up as something else. We're dressing it up and weaponizing other people's empathy by calling it oppression uh, and and turning that into a religion. And it really is a lot of this brainwashing that you were that you were talking about. Um, that's what I see when I when I read these stories. And I, I think I'm vaguely aware of that story. I think I uh, I might have actually listened to it on one of your podcasts because I, I was going through some of your podcasts. Um, yeah, yeah, I've talked to it. But yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, but it's not like there's, okay, the stuff that I think we need to this. come back to a place where we, 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 ha- I mean, this is just my thoughts, mm-hmm. um, but I think we need to find space where we can start talking about what makes us fulfilled and truly happy human beings, like back to basic stuff, right? The stuff that I tried to raise my child with that now would probably be called extreme right wing conspiracy thoughts like where you have a duty to those you love and they have a duty to you and you are um, conscientiousness, you know, um, 
treating people with decency and respect and 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 having the same in return like those super basic things like i think that that's the only antidote to to this uh, indoctrination but whether or not we're able to do that i don't know i qu- i question that all the time i don't know if i could do that with my own child um so i don't know it's, I, okay when i first got back from overseas my first thing is we got something wrong in universities that's going to be fixed but now it's like okay we need to fix the k through 12 as well because if you don't fix that so even up until about 20 i think it's i think jonathan hype talks about this 12 yep, 10, 12 20, 13 that's when yeah that's when it went from you know administration-led protest type of thing right? like it was before any of the protests in like berkeley and stuff like that in the 60s it was the students and but around 2012 or so, it was the administration that started leading the stuff. And it was them that for, pushed the students into it. But now that you've got, that just reinforced itself. So now you have both students and administrators. And so, like, like I said, if, if you can fix the universities, but if you don't watch out, the kids graduating are going to be coming in and they're already but in that mindset. Yeah, but you're talking from the perspective of someone who doesn't have a child. So yeah. there's more than so children experience more than 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 the school and certainly they spend a lot of time there and look I'm not saying I, I think there's a really uh, part to play for families too like to recognize that okay so I used to think the concept of family values was extreme right and it was very this American cool you know doolally kind of idea but I'm starting to come around to the idea that we do need to rethink this idea of of instilling those kinds of family values and strength within the family because. That's what's being lost. And when children are well-rooted in loving families, there's much more of a, a barrier between them and being indoctrinated in this way, right? There's like a, an inoculation, if you will. And so I get what you're trying to say, but I think it really begins at home in families because schools only play a certain part. And if your child is left vulnerable because they didn't have the necessary uh, foundation, then, then they're much more vulnerable. And I can honestly say that looking back, I could have done a lot more to instill uh, more inoculation into my child had I understood the situation. So, I mean, yeah, there is a part to play in the politics and and the school boards and all this stuff. Absolutely. But we also need to talk about how we can encourage people to strengthen their own families as well. Yeah. I mean, okay, I, I'm not arguing with you there at all. And I'm, I'm not saying that school is the only thing that you're getting this. You can take all the quotes you want. You can go back to Aristotle, like give me the Give me the child until he's seven, and I'll show you the man. You know, uh, you can you can take other quotes. I mean, like I, I know moms for liberty got no paid a bit of a problem in the states because they quoted Hitler. But I mean, there's, there's a Hitler quote that I use all the time about this. So it's from mind Kaufman. Like when you know, when an enemy comes to me and says, "I'm not, I don't stand in your camp," it's like, I don't care. You're a material. Like I have your children. Your children are now in my camp. So that's what that's matter. So you know. The the, th- the the reason I get on the schools is because, especially with social media and everything, they hear about something in schools, they'll go online, they'll talk to their friends, they'll find, you know, chat, whatever, chat rooms and, you know, message, I'm showing my, you know, like, they'll find boards, they'll find YouTube channels, they'll find all kinds of resources, you know, that'll, you know, Reddit communities and whatever, that'll reinforce that. So, if you don't, yeah, if you don't have a strong family life, and that goes back to what I was originally talking about, is they've made it so hard for families to do that because yes. parents are so, you know, 
you've, you've, you can't leave your kids alone. You know, you can't let your kids go out and play all day so that mom and dad can sit around and, you know, plan out a budget, talk about what they're going to do, you know, whatever, just like you, you don't have that. Yeah. So let me tell you another story. (laughs) I just interviewed a parent recently for for the Resilience podcast. And um, at the end of the conversation, sometimes I I continue speaking to to the parents and I I did. I ended up speaking to her and um, she was explaining to me that it was so and this child comes from a very, very, very loving family. And this person is lifelong NDP, not just supporter, but active in the NDP, uh, affirmed her child, uh, all this stuff and still got treated like a bigot and the secrets were kept from her. And that's what whole podcast is, is that it doesn't matter if you're left or right, or even if you affirm to no end, you're still going to get treated in this way. Anyway, that's not the story. The story is at the end, she was saying, you know, what, what kind of future are we setting these kids up with when we're, you know, th- they're being told that parents are inherently abusive. Right. If they go to their friends, they go to the school, if they go all over the anywhere and they say, well, my mom was really mean to me and like, well, it's because your mom's abusive. And she was saying that when she was growing up, that no matter how difficult she had it at home, no matter what argument that she had, if she went to a teacher or a babysitter or any other kind of adult, that adult would always tell her, well, look, your mother loves you. Your mother loves you more than anyone else in the world. And I know that you're having a difficult time right now, but trust me, your mother loves you. And she was explaining to me that that really kept, she didn't appreciate it at the time because obviously you're a teenager and you think, no, she doesn't. My mom's stupid. But but she said that she internalized that message and she knew that her mother loved her. And she was saying, what are we doing to our children when we're telling our children, your, your parents don't love you, they're abusive. Even when they're doing all the things that you're supposed to do to be the 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 parent that, uh, you know, the affirming parent, the the woke parent, all of this stuff. And that really that really struck a chord with me. Because you're right, you know, we can do more within families for sure. And I think that's an important thing because I believe in accountability. But it's it is not helped when all of the the entire society that these children are surrounded by are giving you this message that your family is shit and you shouldn't be in it. Yeah. I mean like that kind of messaging and stuff. Even that to some extent, like I'll go back to eighties television and stuff, but I you know, it was always just like a, like a running gag. I mean, you had the, the loving families and whatever you can talk about. You know, like, look at the shows like Family Ties or the Cosby Show and stuff like that. But you still had that running gag of, you know, oh, my wife nags me or you know, my husband's useless. Like, you had those kind of jokes and you had, and it just got progressively, that message got progressively stronger and stronger and stronger. So you had that. And then, you know, I blame. I, I call it like, like you know, like Gen X. At one point, I, I, I go, you're, you're, you're millennial, but I mean, I, Gen X. I, I'd say like, well, I identify a, as a Gen X. It's okay. Uh, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're the after school special generation, and they. That's why we we took those after school specials too much to heart, and I mean, that's why we became so paranoid when you put in policies for kids, and so you know, like, well, it's the boogeyman. Yeah. I call it the boogeyman, yeah. right? This idea of the 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 in the past where um, kids could actually get kicked out from their home for being homosexual. Well, homose- <laughs> I use that word now for some reason. So, um, so yeah, for being gay, right. You, that, that did happen. You know, they could get beat up by their parents. We all have stories of even being beaten up at school. Like that was a thing that did happen in mm-hmm. the nineties and then the eighties. I do remember that, yeah. oh, but know. that changed over time. And for some reason that boogeyman, it didn't, it didn't just remain. So this idea it got now, bigger. 
and scarier and got uglier, worse. right? And more paranoid. And one of the things we haven't talked about, uh, you know, you mentioned 80s TV shows. Um, one of the things that really shifted over time was the portrayal of boys and young men. And uh, mm. it, it's now, uh, you, you know, uh, in order to advance girls, because the argument from the radical feminists was that we've got patriarchy and we've got these uneven outcomes, we have to actually suppress boys. Uh, boys in school in the school system yeah. for a very long time have been treated like defective girls. Um, and the, the the before this you know gender ideology came in, radical feminism was in schools and it was it was infiltrating the environment. Uh, I mean, I came onto this whole thing uh, in terms of awareness in the late aughts, maybe nine, ten, when I was in a contentious divorce. And I went online to try and find resources because my ex was playing custody games and legal games and like really running me through the meat grinder. And um, and then I uh, encountered pushback in forums and chat rooms uh, for you know, I was called a rapist and a misogynist and like they change the language now. It's white supremacy. But um, at the time, you know, the argument coming from, you know, 2012, 2013, we started seeing this this rape culture argument in, in university campuses that we live in a rape culture and and all boys need to be uh, taught not to rape people. And, you know, before the confession of privilege was the was the Frosh Week uh, mandatory training for all young men that you have to go and take this and certify yourself to not be a rapist, right? Uh, like we've just distorted uh, reality around these things. And and boys really live with a sense of shame coming through the education system. Um, and part of that, I think, is, uh, is, you know, lots of people have argued that feminism was one of the leading, you know, contributors to this mess that we're in with gender. And feminists hate to hear that. Uh, but... I, I, as a woman, I would like to underline how true that is and how I've seen that shame uh, show itself within my own child. And I think it's, a, I think we need to say it. And I think as a woman, I need to uh, agree with you very, very strongly on this point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Christine Hoffsummer's book, yep. uh, The War on Boys. Yeah. And then if you look at the stats now, um, you know, like more women are going to universities, you know, like the degrees and all that. Uh, and then when you point out places like Sweden, you know, probably one of the most egalitarian places, women, when they have the choice, still don't go into engineering or, you know, computer science or this, you know, like the, the hardcore STEM fields, right? Like they'll, it's, when they have that choice, they choose to go into something that's, that they like better. I'm not saying better suited for whatever, just, you know, they like better, so they'll go into that. Um, you know, and when you bring that up, again, well, you're sexist, you're misogynistic, you're upholding the patriarchy, you know, sense. Um, again, like I said, I don't want to keep you, both of you so too much longer, but one one last thing I want to talk about before, uh, before we go is, this is one of my bugbears about all this stuff. So, when first it was the CRT stuff, oh, there's no CRT in the curriculum. You spent so much time arguing about whether or not there's CRT in the curriculum. You didn't talk about, I mean, I have better stats for the U.S. than for Canada for whatever reason. The stats in Canada are much harder to find. But, you know, in the States, I think nationwide, uh, it's gotten worse. But at one point, it was like, I think pre-COVID, it was something like 65% couldn't do math at grade level. 
and 75% nationally couldn't read at grade level. I'm like, that's the problem. Problem's not whether or not the curriculum is CRT. Okay, that's secondary. I mean, you can argue whether or not that curriculum will help these kids read and do math. That's you know, that's a valid argument, but you spend so much time on the secondary argument with this nonsense. Spend so much time on no, that's not CRT. Or gender stuff isn't in the right. curriculum. But it's in the schools, it's being taught. You know, the focus of the schools should be can these kids read? Can they do math? No, that's not the point of a Freirean education is to produce more Freirean education. Right? Yeah, no, no, I, I get it. But what yeah. it, that, that's what I mean. Like, we've lost focus on what the argument is. You, you, you've gotten you've gotten away from, okay, this is what schools should be doing. And now I see it. Now I see it coming back in a lot of the protests, you know, either in Canada or the U.S., it's like, we want our kids to read and write and do math. We don't care about all that. So, I, I mean, yeah. I think in that aspect of the lockdowns, that helped that. But it's, so I want to see where you guys, you know, fit in on that. Like, where you think, like, how bad is Canada compared to the States? I know some stats just come out of Ontario, so I don't know if you have any kind of numbers or figures on that. I don't know about numbers. Uh, we have our own flavors of critical race theory, the whole decolonization narrative and the, um, you know, theft of indigenous land and genocidal and um, history and all of those things. Uh, you can't argue that that's not being taught in schools because it's embedded in everything. Uh, but but just like the curriculum yeah. versus the policies and the gender stuff, that's that's the the division uh in uh, in canadian schools it's between uh you know the curriculum and, and policy you know feminist ideology is does isn't taught in schools but the feminist teachers treat people based on their their uh you know radical feminist views um and and yeah. they they act within that that framework it's the difference between theory and, yeah. and praxis right so what, what the theory is and what the application of that theory is and it, this is yeah. all a distraction i will say like okay we've talked about a lot of frightening things i will say that i and and people have different opinions on this but there was a, a bill 98 that passed in ontario an education bill uh reform in the beginning uh end of summer end of spring beginning of summer and one of the first implementations is that uh, Stephen Lecce has uh, has created a circumstance where schools and school boards have mandatory reporting about who the external trainers are coming in for professional development for teachers. So there's no veil of secrecy on this anymore. It's not, uh, you know, you don't need FOIA. Uh, the schools are going to have to put this up. And at the same time, he overlaid this idea that we want to focus on math, reading, and writing, and skills. And when you compare the two, here's the objective, math, writing, reading, and skills, versus what's being taught to teachers to teach to children in this policy environment, and they just don't line up. Um, and and so it gives a structure for accountability. And I I, I know a lot of people in, in who are really active in this area, people who ran for school trustee like I did, who are cynical on this. Um, and I, for me, the jury's kind of out. I'm hopeful that this has an impact because it it opens up that box and it ends the argument. If we're focused on improving math, reading, writing, and skills, then why the hell 
are teachers and unions and boards all focused on DEI. And and one more uh, positive point to end on is that it's a small number of people, the most radical activists, the zealots uh, who have got us in this position, admittedly over a long period of time, but it's a small minority of people. And all it takes is a small minority of people to completely change the culture. And right now, there is a equally small yet substantially growing minority of, of uh, defiant objectors who are working diligently in their own networks, who are intelligent, capable people who have just as much energy as some of the most radicals on the other side to actually make a difference. And so, you know, th there is absolute uh, uh the, 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 there's a there's potential for things to be to change for the positive in the future is what I what I'm saying. It's the feeling that I get as much as I complain. I'd like everyone to stand up, um, but it's it's really heartening to see that there absolutely are many many people um, who who are doing something about it. So that's my positive end note. That's good. I mean, that's good to hear. Like I'm, I just like to turn this around. I mean, you know, I don't really want to read another. CRT paper or some more gender theory because it's mind numbing. So you know, if I can go back to just making like you know, fart jokes and just sit around with my buddies and watch hockey, I'd be happy. Uh, <laughs> That'll be the time for the slippers and read, the cigar. Have you read a book called exactly. The Fourth Turning? You come across it because it's nope. written by. Uh, we're talking about Gen Gen X and millennials. These are a couple of guys <laughs> who really focused on the study of uh, the culture of generations um, and these different divides between the yeah. silent generation the baby boomers gen x uh, millennials gen z and, and where we're at now and they lay out a they lay out an idea that about every 80 years or so societies go through a crisis and part of it is because you know the silent generation uh, you know they got through the second world war they're the parents of the baby boomers they suffered the great depression the stock market crash high unemployment uh, my grandparents arrived in the prairies in the dirty 30s they called it the dust bowl like there was a drought and it was really really hard living and because of that hard living um, you know surviving war and conflict and famine and and hardship people became very disciplined um and that discipline and that rigor uh, established itself and that each generation successively has rebelled against it. So the baby boomers push back against their parents, the silent generation to become more liberal. And some of that was good, right? The, uh, the um, uh, rights movement in, in the sixties and the, you know, the ending of segregation and all that, uh, uh, the, the gay liberation movement, you know, we, we really transformed society with some of that rebellion against very, very conservative rigidity. But each each generation that has come has degenerated. And this 80-year cycle or four generations or the fourth turning is where we're at right now. And these guys who wrote this book in the 90s predicted that in the mid-20s, we would be at the peak of the crisis, which is where we are now. Um, yeah. But I mean, you always have, that's, there's a saying. That's right. Good times, good times, good when. I, I hope, I hope we're not too far gone that we can turn this around because. Well, I will work on my dying bed to make sure that that's not the case. Yeah. I'll say here, like, I, I will, I, I, you know, so here's my 
thing on this. Like, so my family immigrated to Canada when I was six. Now I'm not claiming racism or anything here, but it, especially back in Montreal in the seventies, when we moved here, you know, my, my dad looked at where my, my aunts and uncles were living. And he's like, I'm not living here. And he goes, I didn't leave India to come to Canada to, go to live in little India. Because South Shore of Montreal was starting to get ghettoized and a lot of South Asians. So we moved to Nuns Island, which, you know, was pretty much just white Canadians. And in my school, I think there was a handful of kids who weren't white. So there was always a, a feeling of, okay, you're not the same. And I, like, you know, I had a lot of good friends. I, I'm not saying anyone was like, yeah, there were some racist idiots, but, but I picked up the values that were being taught and talked about. And, you know, go back to India for a visit. Uh, I've always had happy feet. So I, you know, I'd save up all my money and I'd go traveling and stuff. And I'd come back to Canada and appreciate it. So I glommed on to those values. And you know, so when I and when I talk about those values, like the values mean like so individual freedoms, my right to speak, my right to believe what I want to believe, and, you know, all my individual rights. I believed in that. I believed everyone had those. So for me, you know, what's happening now is like, no, I'm sorry. You are, this is completely counter to what I was taught. This is completely counter to what this was, this country was supposed to be built on. And I'm going to fight for what, for, I'm going to fight for those rights, for those liberties. That's what I want. And it's, you know, everyone has their own upbringing or whatever, but my upbringing made it so that I would not give those up. And I mean, before I went overseas, social media wasn't really a thing. I think, I don't even think MySpace was around back then because I, I went overseas in 2002, I believe. And so, you know, there was ICQ and things like that. But there was, you know, there was no real social media. Um, it was, and when I came back, I was like, what the hell happened? And it was, it, it, that's when I said, okay, I thought it was an Islam thing. I thought, okay, people aren't educated. I'll speak out about Islam and educate them. I didn't realize it was only when I started digging deep into it, saw how messed up it was. I said, "You, you are going against these rights." Anyway, like I said, I, I should let you guys go. Um, if you want to let people know where they can find you, uh, if you want to also send me the links to your podcasts, I'll put them in the descriptions. Um, yeah, so please go ahead. Uh, well, I have not memorized the uh, URL. By the way, thank you for sharing that. You're not the first uh, person that's actually shared a very similar story about um, coming to Canada actually on my space. Oh, I actually, I, I also have Twitter spaces every Tuesday at seven. Uh, I am Finkel Dusty. Do not ask where that comes from. It does not come from anywhere. I am Finkel Dusty on Twitter. If you're interested in coming to a space where you can talk about these woke issues, especially gender issues, or talk about these marches coming up, we talk about that a lot, news, etc. cetera. Um, I do that every Tuesday at uh, seven Eastern. <clears throat> but um, I also have with Our Duty Canada, we have our um, youtube channel just search for our duty canada it'll come up but you have to write canada because our duty has multiple chapters across the world um uh, but yeah you can check us out on there I, you, can, you can find me uh my legal name is shannon boshay but i go by shannon b douglas on twitter uh, i've been using that as a pen name for a number of years and uh, uh, it uh, was useful when i was anonymous uh, but i i'm open about my about who i am now um I uh, and Melanie co-host the weekly Canadian Gender Wars report on Sunday afternoons. Uh, we've switched to a live format, 
uh, recently, and uh, we're we're constantly improving and learning from what we're doing. Uh, we cover the biggest stories in the, in the gender um, uh, you know space across Canada and education. And uh, I mean, this week's going to be huge. We'll talk about uh, Megan Murphy. We'll talk about this thing in Ottawa. We'll talk about BC legislature. Tons of tons of stuff up to date that people can track, as well as what's coming up with uh, the marches on the 21st of October. Um, I occasionally write uh, for uh, the Woke Watch Canada newsletter um, published by James Pugh. That's a sort of um, within arm's length of the Lighthouse Network. Um, and uh, James does some really awesome stuff there. So if you want to check out that Substack. Um, and uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be publishing some work uh, about artificial intelligence research and uh, the gender culture online. I'm doing my annual review. We contracted a big AI firm a year ago to do some research and been working with some big names in, in the space, psychotherapists and medical doctors and, and things like that that are consulting to the project. So keep an eye out for that. That's called APISC Digital Research Foundation, uh, Adolescent Peer Influence and Social Contagion is the acronym. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you both for coming on. It was great talking Likewise. to you. Likewise. Thank you. And Thanks for having us. And thanks everyone for listening.